Father, this morning we come and we offer up our praises to you. We come thankful for the gift of life that you have given us, as well as the the gift of new life, of salvation that has been accomplished for us through your Son. It's continued to pour, been poured out on us through your Spirit. We we pray that um, your Spirit this morning would come and fill up this place and fill up our hearts and would speak to us, that our our minds would be calmed, our thoughts would be focused, uh, that the distractions of our week uh, and of our lives would be put to the side momentarily so that we might uh, open up your scriptures and might hear from you, might have our eyes focused on you, and might have our lives patterned after you and after your son. Father, we pray that you would, uh, through the power of your spirit, form us and shape us into people um, who follow your son, who are faithful to his commandments his teachings, and his example for us. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit, we pray this morning. Amen. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, excuse me, chapter 19 uh, is where we'll be this morning. We are in the middle of a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. If you're not familiar with the Apostles' Creed, it's one of the earliest statements of faith that the Christian community came up with and has held and recited and embraced for hundreds of hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, we are looking through the Apostles' Creed, going through it kind of line by line, um, not because the Creed has any sort of special authority in and of itself, but rather because the Creed works as kind of this reflective mirror pointing us towards the scriptures. As we've seen, pretty much every line in the creed so far is kind of verbatim, word for word, out of scripture. Um, it kind of sucks up some of the deep truths of scripture and, and condenses this for us so that, so that we can uh, affirm it and, 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 and be balanced um, people. We, we've noticed as we've gone through the creed that the creed often serves as purpose of balance. As Christians, sometimes we can get too focused on, on one truth uh, or see one truth in a certain way and and, and we go kind of too far in that direction, and the creed or um, uh, uh, kind of uh, sitting back and looking at all of the truths of God, right, help to, to balance us out. Um, sometimes we see our faith in very individualistic terms, um, and the creed, with its emphasis on the community of God that we belong to, balances us and says, well, yes, your faith is personal. It's not private. It's a, a faith that belongs to the community that you share with brothers and sisters. Um, too often we perhaps focus only on God the Father and Jesus, and, and we forget the Holy Spirit. And the creed, again, it's not going to let us forget the Holy Spirit. It's going to say, no, you have to account for, you have to believe in, you have to trust in um, the third person of God here, the Holy Spirit. We come today in the creed, we're in, our, in the section of the creed that um, is in um, reference to Jesus, uh, God the Son. And we come today to probably the most brutal part of the creed, um, to probably the most kind of shattering um, part of the creed, the kind of central aspect of Christians' faith. And I want to today explore how not only the creed, but, but the central truth of Christianity can be and is relevant to today's world. Um, so often what I hear as a theology professor, I was um, in, in one of my first classes this semester, like, what comes to your mind when you think of theology? And someone's like, old white people. <laughs> I was like, okay, some of us are young, all right, <laughs> let's back up a second. I was like, I get it, right? It kind of seems kind of boring and irrelevant. You picture men arguing about how many angels can dance on the head of a needle, right? And you're like, this has no relevance 
to life. This is no relevance to the world around us. And in particular, if we're paying attention, the world around us is kind of brutal. I mean, there are real things happening every day that need to be addressed, that need prayer on our part, that need action on our part. And I think that not only does theology and the creed address those issues, I think they're actually one of the most relevant things that human beings have in order to comprehend and understand and, again, respond to some of the things that are going on around the world. And so we will look at that this morning, and I'll try to connect the relevance here of the creed to some of the most brutal things that are going on in in the globe uh, today. So we'll read through the creed. I'll read it for you. Um, It starts like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. So this morning we're looking at these two lines. I believe in Jesus Christ who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Here we see again now the third person out of the three people in the creed who are named, the three human beings. You've got Jesus, who was a human being. You've got Mary, Jesus' mother. And then you've got Pontius Pilate. Mary serves as kind of a good example for us, of one who says yes to God's plan for her life. Pontius Pilate serves as the foil to Mary. Pontius Pilate, um, perhaps unfortunately, gets singled out um, in Christian history as the person who's named alongside Jesus' death. Um, I joked last week when we were talking about Mary that I've got to imagine Pontius Pilate as summer going like, guys, I was not the only one involved on this, right? For all of history, it's just my name up here. Um, there's reasons that Pontius is mentioned here, um, and we'll get into that. But, but first, I want to look at one of the scriptures this um, line is taken from, these two lines are taken from. So in John chapter 19, uh, we'll pick it up in verse 16. The end of verse 16, this is at the end of the crucifixion scene in the Gospel of John. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the King of the Jews, But rather write, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So Pilate is is named in the creed. Um, It's not only the creed that kind of singles out Pilate, though. If you look at early Christian texts, early Christian theologians, they almost all mention Pilate when it comes to talk about the death of Jesus. There's a couple of reasons for that. The biggest reason is because this was a way of dating um, events in the ancient world. Um, so in, in this time period, you don't say such and such happened in year right, 250 BC. They don't have that kind of a dating system yet. So they usually date it in terms of uh, reference to someone's father uh, or in terms of who was governing at that area. Pontius Pilate just so happened to be probably the most famous politician, um, most recognizable politician to be able to date the events of Jesus' death. 
the events of Jesus' crucifixion. So he was governor in Judea. Um, he was kind of the Roman um, overlord of the Jewish um, land um, between 26 AD and 36 AD. And so when Christians say crucified, suffered under Pontius Pilate, they're naming or, and dating right, what happened to Jesus. Um, they're not trying to lay all, the, lay all the blame on Pontius. Everyone's aware there's much more involved than just Pontius Pilate. Um, if you read the story carefully, you might be a little empathetic toward Pontius Pilate. He seems to have not really wanted, wanted to get his hands dirty with this, but kind of was forced into to playing these cards. Um, but they're doing it to, to date it. And, and to, importantly, another reason is to label this as an event in history. Christianity is a historical religion, and, and Christians have always gone out of their way to make sure that we maintain that historicity to our faith. Um, Christians don't believe in a series of eternal ideas or thoughts or theories. Christians don't um, place their faith in ideas or thoughts or theories. Christians believe in, we place our faith in, uh, the person of God who has acted in history. Um, From very early on in the Old Testament, the Israelites um, did not believe in these eternal, timeless myths about God. They believed God took us out of Egypt and put us into this land. And there were dates, and there were people, and there were places. And it's the same with Jesus. When when Christians affirm their faith in Jesus, we're not affirming um, this kind of ephemeral idea about God or about salvation or about goodness or about love. We're affirming what God has actually done in history. What we believe actually is the highlight of history, the climax of history. Um, And and we'll talk about this toward the end of the sermon. We're we're coming up on the season of Lent. I mentioned this year before that for Christians— the death and resurrection of Jesus serves as the center of history um, in a way that if we were looking at it almost like the, um, the, the galaxy or space and time kind of weighs down history. And, and so the Christian life kind of orbits around Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, you see this in the pattern of the week. There's a reason Christians worship on Sunday. It's because Sunday is the day that Christ was raised. Every Sunday is kind of a mini Easter. We're meeting to, to recognize, hey, this is the day our Lord raises again from the dead. And the Christian calendar patterns itself very carefully after the life of Jesus. So that every year we spend time thinking about Jesus' death. And every year we spend time thinking about Jesus' resurrection. And every year we spend time thinking about Jesus' birth. We go in this kind of circle. Because if you're looking at history as this kind of plane what happened with Jesus and the crucifixion is so heavy and so central, right, that everything else kind of starts to rotate around it, starts to bear witness to it. Christians believe this is God acting in history. Um, this is God doing something decisive about um, the evil that's in the world uh, in order to save us, in order to, to bring his love and rescue and redemption into the world. Now, this phrase suffered under Pontius Pilate and then was crucified, died, and was buried. You see it here in John chapter 19. They crucified Jesus. Um, Unfortunately, what happens when you talk about something a lot is it starts to lose its force. And there's really no way around this, right? Um, The solution to this problem is not to not talk about it, right? We've sometimes done this for certain things. Um, I think we've seen this happen incorrectly when it comes to communion. Um, certain groups have said, you know, if you do communion too often, it might lose its meaning. And so then they go to 
during communion, probably much too few times. In fact, every pastor I've talked to, I know most of them here in Sugarland, who don't do communion every week tell me it's not because they don't want to, despite what their denomination might say. It's just because it's hard with 45,000 people. <laughs> I can't convince a team of volunteers to try to do that, do that every week. So we do it during the week, or we do it you know, once a month, or we do it once a quarter, or half a, twice a year, those kind of things. Um, but the kind of thought process, right, that this is so important that it's not do it in order that it remains important. I think it's a failed kind of experiment. Um, I think you've just got to continually remind yourself, right, about the truths behind this, about how important it is. And in fact, I think repetition can actually enhance the importance of something. For me, I actually never learned how important communion was until I started taking it every week. And then when I wasn't at church one Sunday and wasn't able to take communion, all of a sudden it felt like something had been ripped from my week. And for the first time, I realized, oh, wow, this had become an important practice for me. This had become something that shapes me every week as I come to the table uh, and, and take the bread and, and drink of the cup. Um, and so it is, I think, when we come to Jesus' death. Jesus was crucified. This, this word, idea, crucifixion, for an educated person in the first century, it would have been something you didn't talk about. It would have been something that would have sent a shudder down your back. Um, it was a brutal, violent, humiliating form of, of, of punishment of public death, crucifixion. Um, there are lots of ways that the, the Romans would crucify people. The, the goal in all of them were the same. It was to publicly humiliate a criminal, usually someone who was rebelling against the Roman Empire, in such a way to defer other such rebellions. And so you see this. They, they put Jesus in the city. Um, people are walking by him. Um, this is common. We have it from the, the history books. Um, that when the Romans often would crucify hundreds of people at a time, they would often place them on the busiest streets. And we think of crucifixion, right, as perhaps this like kind of big drama production. And we'd like be at the cross staring up. Usually they'd, they'd formulate it so that you were eye to eye with the person dying. And, and you were walking by just a couple feet from where their blood and spit and sweat were falling down on the ground. It was a very public, very in-your-face um, type of ordeal very much a warning and a, and a lesson about who's in charge and what happens when you try to test that, that boundary. Um, the Roman Empire was only able to be as large as they were and as powerful as they were without the technology that is available today because of this kind of brutality. For all the sexiness and romantic imagery that sometimes we give to the Roman Empire, um, at its core, it's just a brutal regime that enforced their peace Pax Romana, through crucifixion. Um, so for, for years, right, leaders, pastors, theologians have said the best, the best example we have for crucifixion is the electric chair. And it's just not the best example anymore, right? Because the electric chair doesn't get used. And even when it did, or if it did get used, I still wouldn't think maybe it'd be that great of an example. It's just maybe our closest example to an execution, um, to, to, to being um, publicly put to death by a government. Um, but I'm, I'm one of those people that are in the camp that you don't compare anything to the crucifixion. Not to say that the crucifixion is, some people will try to over-dramatize this, to say crucifixion is the worst possible way anyone could ever die, as if Jesus, for his salvation to be accomplished, had to be like the worst suffering any human being has ever gone through in their life. It's not, I don't think, necessarily the case, right? Um, it's enough to say it was a brutal and humiliating and awful way to die. 
And Christians have, from the beginning, not only accepted that this happened to their king, to the person that they follow, they've embraced it. And it's a scandal. It was from the beginning, and it is right now. And to the, to the extent that it's not a scandal that the person we worship as God, the person we follow as our Lord and our King, was crucified on a cross like a common criminal, to the extent that it doesn't scandalize us, I think we have sanitized it. I think we have Americanized it, Westernized it. I think we have put our own um, spin on it. The crucifixion, you know, the cross was not a symbol of salvation or love as it's come. Just real quick right now, who on them or regularly were some sort of a symbol of a cross? Just raise your hand. Good number of us here in the room. Yeah, I can't get mine off. Um, <laughs> I tried a couple times. I think it's permanent. Um, I, you know, so I got this tattoo on my wrist. Ahava said it's from Micah six eight. Love mercy. When I was a young kid, um, you know, a long time ago, and and at the time, one of the like half half baked excuses I gave for getting a tattoo um, was, you know, people will ask me about it, and I'll have a reason to tell them about Jesus. And it was funny. Me and my friends who got the tattoos, like no one has ever asked us about this tattoo, or ever cared past the point of, yeah, it's a Bible verse. Okay, just the, the mind turns off. Um, and so we're like, well, I guess there's no reason really to take one for the team. We're going to hell because we got a tattoo, and no one even cares about it. We can't even, like, make a lesson out of it. Um, when I got this one, though, I was surprised because, perhaps because it's a little bit bigger in your face, this one gets asked about a lot. Pretty much any time, actually, uh, that, that, that I have a sleeve up, um, people who are familiar with me or in public will be like, hey, what's, what's going on with that? In particular, um, why is this cross kind of out of shape? We've got two, two, two bars here on it, and, and I kind of did that on, on purpose. This is one of the earliest cruciform symbols of the Christian church. Cruciform means cross-shaped. And so the cross was originally the earliest symbol, right, of what had happened to Jesus. Again, the fact that you have jewelry in the shape of a cross is insane. I mean, if you were to bring someone from the first century into this room right now, they would think we're just vile people. What kind of people decorate themselves with that kind of symbolism? I mean, what evil, evil, they were like, we thought we were bad, but you guys are horrific. <laughs> the Europeans were right about y'all. <laughs> and so the cross is the symbol of, of what's happened, um, what happened to Jesus, what God has done in the world. Um, and very early on, the Christians looked for ways to kind of exploit this symbolism to further keep the scandal alive. Um, and so the cross eventually, right, gets kind of familiar with people. And before long, you're not thinking about the brutality of Roman crucifixions. You're thinking about Jesus and his followers. And so they would make adjustments to these symbols. The first judgment they made, the Eastern Orthodox Church, put the second line on top of the cross. And the second line represents what we just read here in this passage, this inscription that Pilate had put above Jesus' head. Pilate writes, King of the Jews. And this, is, of course, is why the Romans crucified him on paper. He claimed to be the king. I'm the king. And so you can die as a failed king, and we're going to watch you die. Happened to, by the way, it happened to lots of other people who claimed to be the king. Jesus is not the first or last person to claim that he's the Messiah or to have a following. 
And so once that, that first symbol became kind of familiar, they, they added this bar to emphasize the scandal of this, right? Um, to, to almost kind of mock Pontius Pilate and the Romans. Um, the irony is rich here. Remember you put that sign up to make fun of Jesus? That sign that said king above a cross? Well, guess what? Let's keep it up there. Couldn't said, hey, do you remember that? Because not only have we doubled down on this, but we're even now more firm. That one who was crucified, he is the king of the Jews. He is the king of the entire world. He is God in the flesh come to provide salvation. It was a scandal. You know, the, the Christians looked at all kinds of different ways to exploit this, this symbolism. Um, when, I, when I got the tattoo, I was worried about perspective. I've always got to think about that on a tattoo, like how am I going to see it versus other people see it? And I was worried about like an upside-down cross, right? I was like, one of us is going to be seeing a satanic symbol. Who should it be? And, and I was doing research, as one does before they put a satanic symbol on their body. <laughs> and I found out, I should have probably guessed this, but an upside-down cross was originally, guess it, guess what? A Christian symbol. It was the early Christians who first used the upside-down cross. And if you know much about Christian tradition, it's just legendarily Peter, when he is killed, when he's martyred, says, don't put me on a cross. I'm not worthy to die the same way Jesus died. I want to go on a cross upside-down. This is how much deference Peter shows to his, his Lord. Crucify me upside down. The Christians would use, would use that sign, right, to emphasize the followers of Jesus, their willingness to die for their Lord, their belief in their Lord. Um, crucifixion is not a clean, nice picture. It's not something that's easily understood or uh, appropriated, um, and it's not something that you and I should allow to, to be sanitized. So in the creed, it says, was crucified, died, and was buried. A couple things are happening there. One, um, the early Christians are fighting another group that claims Jesus is not fully human, and so did not fully suffer or fully die. And so all this language here in the creed is an attack against that. Jesus was fully human, and on the cross, he completely fully died. Jesus didn't swoon. He didn't get, like, knocked out and recover a few days later, Jesus was as dead as anything dead has ever been dead. He not only was dead, he was put in the ground. He was buried. He was done. It was from complete death that Jesus was resurrected, was brought back to life. Um, Jesus' crucifixion also, from the very beginning, through scripture and and tradition, stands for a, a message of salvation. Jesus is, his crucifixion is not simply a, an event without meaning, um, it's an event that from the beginning has been interpreted in a certain way by Christians. Jesus died not just because of an accidental, he just died. He died for us, for our salvation. He died to take on the sins of the world. He died to forgive us of our sins. He died to free us from our sins. He died to give us victory over death with him when he raised us from the grave. Jesus died for our salvation. Now, I want to suggest this morning that Christians have too often, when it comes to Jesus' death, focused solely on this aspect of the cross. We have taken Jesus' death and we've privatized it into a, a nice, inspiring, personal meaning. 
Jesus died for my sins. But other than that, the fact that Jesus died on a cross really has no bearing on the type of person that I am or on the type of faith that I practice. I want to argue that while this is true, right? While Jesus died for our sins, while Jesus' death is salvation for Christians, Jesus' death is also more than that. Jesus dies on a cross, and Christians from the very beginning don't see that as an accident. Jesus' death on the cross is not, is not some anomaly to his character. It's not an anomaly to the heart of God. It's not an anomaly to the way Jesus' kingdom works or the way salvation is brought into the world. Here's what I mean by this. The early Christians often um, took Jesus' sayings, right, take up your cross and follow me, very literally. They took it literally because they were being put on crosses when they decided to follow him. It seemed to make sense that way. We now look at those verses and go, well, I got sick last week. So I'm bearing my cross. You know, I'm having some jaw problems, so I'm bearing my cross. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to make fun of anybody. Do you see the two differences between those? One is a pattern of public practice that gets you killed by the authorities, and the other is a way of giving meaning to everyone's daily kind of oddities and sufferings. For early Christians, the cross was not a way just to explain the unfortunate um, sufferings that happened to everyone in the world. It was a way of understanding how God patterns salvation, how love enters into and transforms the world. The cross, as we, we saw last week in Philippians 2, is not an anomaly to God's character. It's a, it's a manifestation, a revelation of God's character. This is how God is. He's one who humbles himself. This is how God's love enters into the world. It enters in through patient, self-sacrificial love. It enters in through sacrifice. It enters in through what seems like foolishness. And for the early Christians, this is how they were to practice their faith. They were to sacrifice their lives. They were to sacrifice their time and their resources. The cross for them was a pattern of life to be adopted. The cross for them was a sign of the character of God's salvation that they were to step into, that they were to own, that they were not only to experience, but to duplicate in the world around them. And so two truths that um, I think we can, we can pull from this. Um, the, the first would be um, this. When Christians historically, I think, have most faithfully followed, followed the pattern of Jesus' life, they come most clearly and painfully into conflict with political rulers and often follow Jesus in the manner of life and also in his manner of death and die as martyrs. When Christians, I think, have historically been most faithful to Jesus, to his pattern of life, to his command to take up your cross and follow me, they, like Jesus, have butted heads with people like Pontius Pilate, with people like King Herod, with people like the chief priests and rulers of Jerusalem, with people who would want to use their power and status for obtaining more power and status and wealth and oppressing the poor and needy, taking away the voice of those who need a voice. Historically, globally, throughout history, Christians have stood up and boldly spoken truth to them and then allowed themselves to be killed. 
there's so many things that happen when we start thinking about the cross. One of them is, is, is I think Christians have to ask themselves, why did Jesus get killed? And is the Jesus you hear preached, is the Jesus you hear um, um, advocated for, is the Jesus that you follow, is he a mean enough guy to get crucified? Like, like, like when I was growing up, Jesus was this really like nice kind of 70s hippie child kind of guy, right? You don't crucify that guy. He's annoying. You stop talking to him, inviting him to poker night, but you don't, you don't kill him. You only kill someone who threatens the very status quo of your power and authority and status. You only kill someone who wants to overturn the very structure of the world so that those who are last will be first, so that those who are poor will be wealthy, those who are hungry will be filled, those who are naked will be clothed. When Jesus comes, he, he says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the persecuted, Bless, blessed are, are those who are hungry. Jesus' kingdom, as been often described, is the upside-down kingdom. Now, when, when you see a, a savior, king coming, saying, blessed are the poor, this is inherently kind of unnerving to people who are rich. If things are going to change, money might be taken out of my pocket. If, if people are going to start eating who haven't been being fed, then if I've got a full stomach, something might change. I might lose the food that are on my table. It might not be as sure for me. I might not be able to stockpile it up. So I'll have endless supplies of food forever while people around me starve. This is inherently threatening, at least to those who have an interest in seeing the current pattern of the world continue, where people are oppressed, where injustice reigns, where children, orphans, and widows are oppressed, where people starve, where the voiceless continue to have their voice stifled. And so when Christians, I think, have most faithfully followed the pattern of Jesus' life, you see this all throughout history. They've come into to conflict with these rulers in much the same manner as Jesus. And they haven't responded in violent revolution, just like Jesus did not. They respond by dying. You have to, you have to ask yourself, so, so a lot of people know that I'm a pretty big proponent of nonviolence. To me, it's almost axiomatic that Jesus teaches his followers to be nonviolent. It's hard for me to even see kind of the other, other aspect after the kind of journey that my faith has taken. Um, I completely understand not everyone agrees with me on this issue. Trust me, I've heard the arguments. Um, uh, but just kind of where I'm at, right? You have to ask yourself, what about your faith would allow you or allow anyone to ever be martyred? If, if at the end of the day, you always get to protect yourself and your interests and your families. And how do you explain the, the hundreds of thousands of stories where people have let their, their children be killed before they renounce their faith in Jesus? Who have let themselves be killed before they renounce their faith in Jesus? You explain it because of the cross. Because from the very beginning, Christians have thought it's not through killing people that salvation and love and transformation happens in the world. It's actually through being killed. And then as people in the 21st century, we can look back in history and see this has worked. Tertullian had this famous saying, right? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Guess where the church grows really fast and really powerfully? Where they're being killed. Guess where the church dies and shrivels up and is an embarrassment? 
where they have money and power and status and, and authority. This is not a, I don't think this is a debate, right? This is just historical fact. This is just how it's happened in the world. Our faith doesn't seem to be the type of faith that flourishes when you and I can sanitize ourselves from the sufferings of the world. When we put ourselves first, when we aren't willing to sacrifice our safety and the safety of the people we love so that others can be blessed. We talked about this last week when, when we, we talked about Jesus becoming a human being. God's reaction to the evil of the world was not to throw blame around, was not to shame the world. It was what? To enter into the darkness in love with forgiveness. We talked about the culture we live in right now is so outraged about everything. Not that there aren't things to be outraged about, but the solution to that outrage, it seems, if you open up Facebook, is just to throw blame and shame around. It's not to enter into those situations and, and embody God's light and love and transformation. But that would be a much more Christian approach. To see something that's dark, to see something that's broken, and to say, okay, I'm going to go there. I'm going to butt heads with people who get in my way. And yeah, it might, it might mean that I'm not as safe as I was before. There are bigger things than that in this world. I'm a stupid kid. Um, and, 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 and people say this is because I'm not 30 yet. Um, once I'm 30 and I have a kid, things will change. I'm sure they will. But since I, I became a Christian, I've never really been afraid of dying. And it's, guess, I, believe me, I understand how easy that is for me to say right now. As I'm drinking my bottled water in Sugarland, Texas. <laughs> Not afraid. Um, but, uh, you know, like eight years ago, I went to Kenya. And it was uh, during a time in the, the world where the U.S. government was like, don't go to Kenya, go other places. Um, and my parents were not thrilled with the fact that I was going to Kenya, right? And, and I, I mean, I totally understood, but I just had no way to relate to that. The idea that I would, would turn down a ministry opportunity because I might get held up at the airport or beaten up by some thugs who wanted the computers I'm taking over there. The idea that, that I would withhold ministry resources from the church in order to protect my own skin just didn't compute. It just made no sense at all. And yeah, I know things will change when I have kids. I know I'll get a little more conservative, and I'll feel that fatherly protection. Trust me, I've got a dog. <laughs> Try to touch my dog and see how fast I lose my religion on you. But I just think historically, theologically, scripturally, this is how Christians are called to act and, and have acted when they're most faithful um, to the crucified one. I mean, the mistake that, that Christians make is either to make Jesus' crucifixion completely about some inner salvation that never works itself out into our actual lives, just something Jesus had to do but has nothing to do with us and our faith, or we skip the crucifixion and look just at his resurrection. We go to what theologians call theology, theology of glory instead of theology of suffering. And we go, but no, 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 Jesus didn't, he was crucified so that we wouldn't have to be. Like, well, not what he said, like, over and over and over again. You take up your cross, you follow me. It's not what his early disciples said, we share in Christ's sufferings. It's not what they did, they got crucified. 
we, we have to remember, and this is what the creed does for us, the resurrected one who lied today, who we worship, never ceases being the crucified one. Does that make sense? Jesus is forever and always the one who was crucified. This is why when he's resurrected, it's, it's very important. He's still got the scars of the crucifixion. There's no mistaking it. The crucifixion is not a one-time accident in Jesus' life that he washes off, brushes the dirt off his shoulder, and keeps going on to something better. The crucifixion is the embodiment of his way in the world, of what it looks like to be faithful to God the Father, to embody his faithfulness into the world, to bring light and love and salvation and transformation into dark, sinful, evil places in the world. So when Christians most faithfully follow Jesus' pattern of life, they come into conflict with rulers and often follow him in, in death. Two, when Christians have relied on the power of the state to advance their own goals, or even worse, imitated in the life of the church the values and practices of the state, they've lost their distinctive identity and become oppressors of others. So you, you see this, if you saw your Bible open, um, before the passage we read in John chapter 18 and verse 33, Jesus is in one of a few exchanges with Pilate. And he says, Pilate entered his headquarters again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Did you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? They're kind of playing a game of cat and mouse here. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. My kingdom is not of this world, from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? <clears throat> I have to think this is a relevant question in our political environment. I think this is the question everyone's asking themselves right now, liberals and conservatives, libertarians and anarchists. What, what's, what's really reality right now? What are the real facts? What's fake news? What's real news? Who should we listen to? When should we listen to them? How do we determine what is truth? Notice in this encounter, Jesus and Pilate are representations of two separate kingdoms. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus, and the kingdom of this world. Now, world in John's gospel is not a, a phrase just to indicate kind of earthly existence. It is fraught with theological meaning. World means that which is not from God. Um, world means kind of the evil part of the earthly existence. When Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world, not from this world, he's not doing what some Christians do now, which is taking the kingdom of God, and privatizing it, taking it out of the public sphere of life, taking it out of your public character as a Christian and putting it inside of your heart for you to be grateful on a Sunday morning. You, you see this, how he explains it, right? He says, if my kingdom were, guess what? We'd be whooping your butt right now. And Jesus has no qualms about this, right? He's like, look, if we wanted to fight you, I would snap my fingers and angels would be here killing all of you. Paul will extrapolating on this, say, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It's not that Jesus died because he was weak and couldn't have fought back 
as we now know is the way to win things in the world and to enforce your rule, it's that Jesus on purpose said that's not how God enforces his rule in the world. When God wants to change things, he doesn't show up and kill the people who disagree with him. He shows up with patience and love, with invitations into the truth, and then allows even self-sacrifice if the power is to be determined that that's the right course of action. When he says, my kingdom is not from your world, he's not saying our kingdoms aren't clashing. He's saying, my kingdom is not shaped like yours. It has a different character. In particular, it's cruciform. It takes the character of the cross, the shape of the cross. And throughout history, when Christians have used the power and weapons and tools of worldly kingdoms, nation states and empires, to advance their own goals or values, what you'll find is they've, they've often lost their identity as Christians. They've also, also usually accidentally become oppressors of other people. Accidentally, oftentimes. I think you see this so clearly here in this, this John 18 passage. This is, I think, some of the implications of what it means to say, I believe in one, I trust in one, I put my faith and loyalty in one who was crucified. The one who butted heads with the powers to beat and allowed himself to be killed. It means this is not only a one-time thing that happened to Jesus that's peculiar but interesting. This is the very shape of faithfulness. This is the very life that all of God's people are called to live, are called to model. In big, flashy examples and then everyday little examples where we do endure sickness and suffering and bosses. but where we also are willing to, to stand up in ways that might cost us, to speak out in ways that not, might not be popular, but to do so in a distinctively Jesus way, never trying to take the weapons and tools of the worldly kingdoms in order to advance God's values, God's kingdom. Let me um, bring this out in two applications. We'll wrap it up for today. The first one is this, and uh, it's been on my mind for a while. <laughs> We've talked about it before every now and then. But I uh, wanted to let the political situation die down a bit before I brought it back up. And then, as I was studying this week, I just thought there's no better time to talk about it than right now. The brutality of the crucifixion reminds me, in particular right now, of the brutality of what's happening in our world. You and I are living through what is, if it not the, one of the most awful things that have happened in the 21st century yet. I'm talking about this, the war in Syria the Syrian refugee crisis. You and I are going to go down in history. Think about the people who lived through the Holocaust. Think about the people who lived through World War II, Vietnam. I mean, any big, big event like that. This will be our role in history. I will be the white preacher who stood up and preached sermons while the refugee crisis in Syria was happening. And I will be judged in history according to how I responded, if I responded, what my position was towards that, and then if my position towards that ever ever meant anything more than just speech or ideas. This transcends politics. It transcends partisan. Um, Just um, not too long ago, a neuropsychologist, Dr. Hazma, with the Syrian-American Medical Society, he works over there on the front lines with these refugee children, 
they, they came up, they had a conference trying to describe what they're seeing over there. And they came up with a new term for what's happening to these children. But as I said, post-traumatic stress disorder does not encompass what they're experiencing. At the very least, it's beyond anything we as medical professionals have ever seen happen to a human being. And so the way we've used post-traumatic stress disorder, we feel like comfortable using it with these children. So they came up with a new term. Again, the, whether a new term should have been come up with, I think it's, it's not here or there. It's not to say this is, the, again, the worst thing that's ever happened to any human being in the world. I say it's probably the worst that's ever happened in our lifetime. Human devastation syndrome is the term they came up with. In the half a million people right now in Syrian refugees, one in five are under the age of 11. Not only are they suffering from what these doctors are calling human devastation syndrome, um, from experiencing such extreme physical and emotional trauma, like holding the shredded remains of their parents in their hands, then going to these refugee camps where they are um, having their problems compounded by crushing poverty, exploitation, and abuse. Most of these children are, are inherently sexually abused just because they're Syrian. That's how people in that part of the world see them, right? It's a little eight-year-old girl in Syria. Okay, this is someone for me to sleep with. That's what hap- happens in these refugee camps. Human devastation syndrome. And it's become politicized, right? Where somehow this is a, this is a discussion about the safety of our nation and, and immigration reform and things of that nature. And I want to suggest that, one, I don't think it is. Two, I don't care if it is. It's a human issue. And, and if it comes to following Jesus or serving the interests of our nation, guess what? I could care less about our nation. I could care less about the safety of Sugarland. Here's what I know, right? I'm not a politician. I don't know what we should do with the immigration reform, right? I don't know, should we build the wall? Should we not? Should, what should extreme vetting? What should they look like? I don't know any of that. And I understand that has a place to play in politics, right? That's a place to play among all responsible adults. We have to give compassion and protect the people already protected, right? You can't just be irresponsible about things. But I do know in some fashion and at some level and in some way, all of us need to do something. Because, man, I just don't want to go down to history as the person who sat there while this happened. You know how many scholars have wondered how German people could just sit there? These good Christian German people. I'm not saying that sarcastically. I mean, these honestly good-hearted Christian people in Germany. Germany, um, at that moment, was the most Christian nation in the world. They just sat there while the Holocaust happened. You know how it happened? People weren't brave enough. They were comfortable. Most of them knew what was happening. Cognitively, they didn't think, right, this is the Holocaust, and we'll go down in history as people who sat by where the Holocaust happened. They just thought this was, this was something we should just turn an eye to. And no one ever got up and, and shoved the facts in their face. And said, I don't, I, don't, I don't care about your nation or your political party. But this is, a, this is a human issue. This is a Christian issue. We should do something. I can tell you, for me personally, and for most people I talk to, the problem of evil is the biggest problem most people have with their faith. The hardest thing about believing in God, believing in Jesus, is the fact that there's so much brutality out there in the world. So much evil. How can a good God exist? 
How can we, we believe God's doing these good things or wants to do these good things? All this is happening, this mess is everywhere. Most of us have experienced this in traumatic ways. It's not an evil we see from afar. It's an evil we experience and have experienced within. Here's what the creed, here's what our faith, here's what the scriptures tell me. The scriptures, Jesus, they, they never try to explain evil. They don't give you an explanation for the problem of evil, a formula for why it exists and how it can exist with God's power and God's goodness and those kind of things. They give you God's response to evil. And his response to evil is he fights against it at all times, at every level, in all places. We call this a warfare worldview. That's what the scriptures present. Evil in the scriptures is not a, a, a theoretical concept to be pondered over. It's something to be fought. It's something to stand up against. And it's what Christians have seen God doing in history and through Jesus and now through the Spirit. Evil, it's not something God stands apart from and God sits safely up in heaven while people suffer. Christians go, no, we worship one who is crucified. The brutality that this world experiences, what hope could you give to a refugee child? How could you possibly talk to them about God? You can start with the cross. Because the God we worship is a God who knows their suffering. He's a God who knows your suffering. Not empathetically, like somebody who can try really hard to imagine what it's like in your position, but sympathetically. Someone who's actually experienced that before. Who draws upon his own experiential knowledge to relate to those in, in need. The brutality of the cross is God's loving response to the brutality of the world. He takes it in on himself. He says, I'll experience it. I'll suffer through it. I'll make a way through it. I'll defeat it. I'll be able to relate to those who are, who are low and oppressed. And as Christians, in all kinds of ways, but especially, I think right now with, with, with the Syrian refugee crisis, you and I have to step up to the plate as, as those who believe in the crucified one. And our, our actions have to, 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 to back that up. I don't know how that looks um, for everybody. Uh, um, but um, a lot of things will happen before... I'll pastor a church without mentioning it a few times while it's happening. Second application is we're about to enter into the season of Lent. This begins on Wednesday. Um, for those of you not familiar with Lent, this is part of the Christian calendar. It's a few weeks before Easter where Christians practice repentance and in particular just kind of prepare themselves to understand and celebrate and participate in Jesus' death. And it starts with Ash Wednesday on, on Wednesday. This Wednesday night, we'll have our Ash Wednesday service here at the church. Um, you're more than invited. Please come. Please participate. But, but here's what I want to suggest. Christians, the Christian community, intentionally trains itself every year to relate to those who are suffering, to follow and understand the God who suffered, the God who brings his kingdom through suffering. Christians should not be people who are, are, are upset and surprised by the evil in the world. Every year we're trained for this. And if you're not yet 
guess what? Good news. Starting Wednesday, we're doing it again. Just like every year. Because the magnitude of the cross is too big for a little, little, little sermon on Sunday morning. It takes a few weeks of introspective prayer and study and conversation with believers. And it takes those few weeks happening every year over and over and over and over again for us to fully start to live into Jesus' sacrifice, the character and shape of the cruciform kingdom. So I'd invite you to, to that. This is, I think, how the creed, how the church calendar is relevant to the world today. Why is theology relevant? Why are these truths relevant to the world? Because the world that we live in is a world that is familiar with crucifixion. It's not a world sanitized from it, shielded from it, hidden from it. It's a world that Jesus came face to face with and said, I'm here to do away with you. Even though that means I'm going to let you defeat me right now. I will win through death. I will win through suffering. My life will be birthed out of your evil. And as Christians, you and I are called to, to the same things throughout the globe, throughout our lives, in all types of areas and situations and circumstances. And it's, it's providence, I think, that we approach this topic in the creed with Lent coming our way. But as I was studying and thinking, like, how can I possibly talk about the cross in one Sunday? I was like, well, I don't, I don't need to. I'll just point out one little, one little wrinkle of it that I think is important right now. But guess what? We've got a few weeks to dig into this together. We've got a few weeks to study and to pray, and to cry with each other, to confess with one another, to seek after Christ with one another. Living like Jesus in a pattern like Jesus is not something that's easy to do. It's not something that's, that's natural for us to do. It's something that's going to take you and I relying on each other, encouraging each other, challenging and convicting one another, learning from one another. And this is the season that we're about to walk into as Christians. And so as we, we affirm today in the creed that we believe in the one who suffered under Pontius Pilate, the one who was crucified, died, and was buried, um, we also are invited to walk into this season of Lent. And that starts for us here at First Colony with our Ash Wednesday service at 6.30 this Wednesday evening here in the sanctuary. So if you can uh, and you still desire, please join us for that, and we'll dig into this a little bit more. Prepare with me.